Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to this special episode of Life with GDPR, where we took a look at the fine assessed by the French Data Protection Regulatory Agency, CNIL, CNIL, on Google this week of 50 million euros. It's an important case, the first major GDPR case involving a U.S. company. I'm joined by Jonathan Armstrong and Andre Bywater, both partners at Cordery Compliance, to explore the background facts of the case, how it ended up in front of the French regulators for determination, what were the violations held against Google, and what are the key takeaways and lessons learned for both U.S. companies and compliance practitioners going forward. It's a fascinating exploration of a case that certainly portends much greater regulatory vigor and enthusiasm by regulators in the EU around GDPR, and it also portends what U.S. companies may be facing going forward. Corey Compliance has written a client alert on this matter, and we link to that in the show notes. So check that out for additional information. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and we are here for an emergency episode of Life with GDPR. And we have with us Jonathan Armstrong and Andre Bywater uh, sitting in London. Gentlemen, welcome. Thank you, Tom. And the reason that we are uh talking to them today is we had a very significant case out of uh, the EU yesterday. So we're recording this on Tuesday. The case came on Monday uh, around a fine leveled against Google. And I thought uh, it would be a great opportunity for us to uh, visit about this. It's certainly a very significant uh, in the EU and probably equally, if not more significant in the United States. So gentlemen, um, we're going to talk about your uh, very excellent client alert entitled French Data Protection Authority Finds Google 50 Million Euros for Violations. Go through it in some deal, detail, and of course, we'll link to it in the show notes. So um, I thought maybe you could set the stage by telling us a little bit about the background to the case. Yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll kick off. Um, thanks, Tom, for setting that up. Um, the case concerns two complaints, effectively, and they were two of the first filed under GDPR. The first was, fine, uh, was filed by uh, the Max Schrems uh, and his pressure group, None of Your Business. You'll remember that Max Schrems is a person we've talked about on these podcasts previously. He was the Austrian law student who attacked, uh, successfully, Safe Harbor and has caused all sorts of worries for the uh, U.S. government in connection with his challenges to standard contractual clauses and obliquely a privacy shield. And he lodged complaints uh, a minute after midnight, I think, on 25th of May when GDPR came in. And this is one of them. And he lodged this particular one with uh, CNIL, the French uh, Data Protection Authority. Now, shortly afterwards, another uh, pressure group, La Quadrature du Net, uh, a uh, French pressure group, again with a track record of challenging transfers to the U.S. in particular, launched uh, a set of complaints to uh, Canil as well. Uh, Schrems was representing, I think, about 10 individuals. Le Quadratude Net said that they made their complaints on behalf of 10,000 data subjects. And effectively, the complaints were saying that Google didn't have a valid legal basis to process the data of users of, of, it, of its services 
particularly for the personalization of advertising, and particularly in connection with Android, its mobile platform. And they complained about enforced consent, i.e. consent which isn't freely given, since there's no other option if you want to use the services that they're offering. And then, Andre, why don't you tell us what Camille did next? They, what's interesting here is the procedure, because, as you know, we have this one-stop shop procedure in the EU under GDPR. Um, I don't know if I need to explain that a bit more, should I? Yeah, probably. Okay. So, please do. Yes, please do. Uh, okay. So let's say you're, it, it concerns where you're processing data across member states. So between France and Germany, Italy and Luxembourg and so on. And the idea is that you will only have to go to one regulator if there's a complaint or a problem and so on. But as we all know, the reality is it's a bit more complex than that. Uh, and the GDPR sets out rather complicated rules about that. Now, here, the, there was this initial question raised as to should this case go through the one-stop shop procedure with the CNIL as the lead regulator or not. And a lot of Google's arguments in this case are they're saying that's what the CNIL should have done. The CNIL did kind of, I wouldn't say start the procedure, they raised some questions with the Irish regulator, I think they had a meeting, and some of the other regulators, but basically the CNIL took their decision that this was their case it fell outside the one-stop shop system. And clearly Google wanted to go through Ireland where their HQ is, um, and they didn't get that. So they started that process, and that actually that went quite quickly because, as Jonathan said, the complaints were lodged at the end of May, and already by late September, the CNIL had already done its investigation online because this is about a privacy policy in terms of use. So hey, it's a very easy one for a regulator. Just look at the website. So they did that, and then they basically already late in October had come up with their preliminary report, even with a suggestion for the fine. And basically, the time that it's taken between now and the decision coming out the other day is giving the parties, Google, time to you know, respond to the, 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 the charges and have an oral hearing and all that kind of stuff. So that's the kind of process. Um, and, and this is, of course, very pertinent, particularly for U.S. corporations, because many of them use Dublin or uh, Ireland, at least, as their center of operations for Europe. And they've assumed, I think, that Ireland is going to be almost their only regulator and have adjusted some of what they've done in accordance with guidance from the Irish regulators. Irish regulator is quite an advanced regulator. There's a specific team based in Dublin who handle uh, issues essentially for U.S. multinationals, and that's done outside of the, the usual team at the uh, Data Protection Commission. And I think uh, one thing that this case tells us is that the assumption that because you've set up an office in Ireland, you're going to have some sort of softer regulatory regime because the Irish regulator is going to look after you. I think that that assumption is blown out of the water by this case. So uh, I don't suppose it would surprise you to under to hear that forum shopping is a time-honored legal and regulatory yeah. tradition in the United <laughs> States, and seeking the um, 
how did you suggest it, softest landing regulator would certainly be something that uh, Google and any other company that might find itself in uh, a GDPR uh, regulatory scheme would certainly try to uh, put itself in front of. Um, but uh, beyond the uh, uh, lack of form shopping that we saw in this, there were a couple of breaches of GDPR that you articulated in your client alert. And frankly, I thought those spoke almost directly to deficiencies typically found uh, by American companies in their data privacy program. So perhaps you could uh, detail those for us, because I think these are going to be significant for uh, many American companies going forward. Yeah, so the first one is transparency. And in some respects, that will be fairly familiar to a U.S. audience in that um, you obviously in the U.S. you can't make a misleading trade promise. We've also had, coincidentally, antitrust activity against Facebook on a similar basis to this case, basically saying that you have to be lawful, uh, fair and transparent when you deal with people's personal data. And that's a requirement of GDPR Article 5. Now, the transparency obligation you and I have talked about, Tom, previously, when we looked at the Emma's Diary case, for example, and even cases like Equifax that deal with data breach incorporate an element of of the transparency principle in them. Here, um, uh, Keneal said that Google's privacy practices were somewhat opaque, They said that parts of its practices were in different places and that sometimes you took five or six actions, I presume they mean clicks by that, to get to the information that uh, GDPR said that Google had to provide. And Kinnell was particularly critical of the use of geolocation in Android. Now, obviously, it's always difficult to navigate on on the small screen of a mobile device, a cell phone, uh, things like terms and conditions and privacy policies. But obviously, the onus is on the operator to make that clear. And there are various ways in which you can do it, you know, using tokens, for example, linked to a website or whatever. But the onus is always on the operator of the service to be clear and comprehensive. And bear in mind, of course, that GDPR requirements apply whether or not you're charging for this stuff. So if you're offering something for free, then you're still likely to have to comply with GDPR. And Canel said that the purposes of processing were described in too generic and vague a manner, and the categories of data processed for those purposes was also vague. It didn't make it clear enough which legal basis it relied on for processing data and how long it would retain data for. Now, ordinarily in cases like this, there are two bases that people often rely on. One's legitimate interest, and the second is consent. Google, in this case, said they relied on consent, and Andre Canil had some criticisms of that as well. Yeah, I think for me, Tom, this is really one of the more, most interesting aspects of the, uh, the decision that I think you've picked up on. Consent for all of us, of course, has been a big issue, how you collect that, how you sort that out. And here, the Canil really goes through step-by-step step, um, what you're supposed to do according to GDPR, they refer to the guidance that's come out to the EU level, and they really tear apart the privacy policy, um, basically saying that it's, it's you can't really be giving truly informed consent the way everything is set up here. Um, and uh, you've got to, for, for example, you've got to be 
providing specific consent for every type of processing activity, and they say that's not been done here. Uh, it's it's a very ambiguous wording they're saying in the privacy policy. So they really do tear it apart. Um, and I think that I, I think that's really their main beef. Jonathan's right. Regulators have a big issue about transparency, including the CNIL do here. But as we've all known, consent has been a, a weak spot for a lot of people. Yeah. And here they really, really, really do have a go. And I suspect many organizations do not have a privacy policy as complex as the polite word I'm going to use as this one. But nevertheless, I think certainly a key takeaway here is you know, to have a look at your privacy policy to see whether you really are, if you're going to base your uh, policy on consent, that you've really cracked that. And I think that's, for me, the big lesson of this case. So, Andre, let me just uh, follow up on that because – uh, I wouldn't be so cynical as to suggest that um, a data company such as Google would have a such a difficult and opaque uh, data privacy policy uh, so as to defy uh, the ability of someone to read and understand it. I'm certainly <laughs> sure that uh, that was not the intended case. But uh, the fact is that many companies in the United States have a uh, 10 to 30 page a set of terms and conditions that are clicked through that you have the option to yeah. read. And um, the legalese is daunting even for, I would dare say, the three of us as a credential yeah. lawyers to read and understand. Do you yeah. think that the EU regulators are directly criticizing that procedure and will make uh, or make demand, uh, demand changes in that time-honored U.S. tradition of uh, burying everything in the fine print? Well, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, in one sense, the GDPR is very clear. You've got to be uh, very specific and you've got to be intelligible and so on. And, they, and it's true, they, they attack not only the privacy policy, but the terms of use. Um, but you raised a really interesting point that did actually occur to me this morning. They Obviously, they've imposed a big fine, but they haven't said, and this is how you should do your policy. But I do wonder whether that's one for the future. Or I don't know what you think, Jonathan. Would a regulator, you think, wade into that and say, this is how you've got to structure and so on, or are they just going to leave it to the businesses? I, I think we will get a case where regulators make recommendations, and particularly what they like are what's called layered privacy policies. So that's a sort of intelligent policy that has a highlight section and then uh, hyperlinks so that you can link into the bit that you're particularly concerned about. But equally, there's all sorts of stuff about uh, reading age as well. Obviously, if you've got a service like Google, uh, Android, that could be used by juniors, then you have to write in a language that they can understand. So realistically, they've got to look at their demographics and got to, got to get to a rate reading age of, what, 12, 13, or whatever. And, and that is often a challenge for U.S. attorneys as well, in my experience. And there was another thing, Thomas, should point out, that's something that's maybe a, a hangs over from an older culture, um, is that one thing that Keneal didn't like was there were a lot of pre-ticked boxes. Yes. And they said you shouldn't be doing that. GDPR is very clear about that. And I suspect that many people may still have that buried in there somewhere. And that's the thing they've got to look at and get rid of. Yeah. 
So in addition to the transparency or opaqueness, which had the lack of transparency, we also had a finding of failure to establish legitimate ground for the handling of data. And although I made some perhaps cynical remarks about transparency, um, this second uh, prong or the second breach would seem to me to be equal, equally problematic for many U.S. companies because, frankly, uh, the exer- uh, their un- entire raison d'etre is to obtain data and then uh, uh, slice it, dice it, market it, and sell it out and use it in a variety of ways. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and, and that failure uh, to establish a literal ground of, of the type of things that Andres just talked about, about consent and failure to get that balance right. And, and as you say, um, oftentimes it's the equation, isn't it? You give me some of your data and I'll give you something for free. And that, that basic equation still exists. You can provide services in exchange for data like Google do, but you've got to be clear with people what the deal is. And also one historic criticism of Google which has founded an earlier CNIL investigation, is with Google particularly, there is data that's shared across platforms. So my Google Maps data might be shared with YouTube. My YouTube data might be shared with Gmail. And it's that interrelationship of different Google properties that has also been problematical in the past. So um, what do you guys see, or uh, perhaps even what does Mr. Cordery see in terms of some of the lessons learned and key takeaways? Well, I think the main thing is that cases like this are here to stay. We know that uh, Mr. Schrems has a volume of uh, additional complaints, both those in the May 25th batch and another more recent batch this year, Again, streaming services, again, Google through its use of YouTube, uh, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera, et cetera. And this is around subject access requests this time around. So I suspect the first thing I'd say is that cases like this are here to stay. As Andre said, this is a relatively easy investigation for a regulator. The regulators maybe spent two or three weeks uh, in its uh, office at La Defense uh, looking through Google's website writing a report, and then um, basically run along to the cash register and issued a, uh, a, a an invoice for 50 million euros. So many regulators are going to find this type of enforcement activity attractive, particularly when pressure groups are prepared to do the hard yards for them. So I think this will be the first of many similar actions. Another takeaway I would say is this whole thing about the one-stop shop, who is my regulator? As Jonathan said earlier, um, many people will assume, for example, if their headquarters is in Ireland, that that's fine for data protection purposes. But I think that's not the case. And people have really got to come up with a plan, if they haven't already done so, to, to say, you know, this is my regulator and this is why I think this is my regulator under one-stop shop. And many more regulators are getting more and more active with GDPR. And we've just done our GDPR Navigator call today. I think we ended up looking at activity in seven different countries that was substantial. So so the more regulators are getting a a piece of the pie. So as Andre says, you need to look at things like one-stop shop carefully. 
Transparency, I think, is another shining light from this case. We've talked about that in the past, but it's clearly on regulators' minds throughout. It's relatively easy for a regulator to get home and dry on transparency if they think you're not being transparent. Many data companies aren't, to be honest, and they've got a hard balance to drive between being transparent and boring and too comprehensive. But again, I think that's why we're going to see things like layered privacy policies, layered statements, use of film, use of animation to get the message across more. Can I just say another thing as well, another thing to think about for the future is GDPR, as we know, is still relatively infant. This is the first big fine we've had. And I think the first decision I've seen where we've had a kind of working out of why and how they're going to apply the fine. Yeah. Because the model for GDPR for applying a fine is the antitrust model. You look at the mitigating factors, the aggravating features, you add all those up and you come up with a sum. Now, here, in my personal and very humble view, uh, it's a little thin on the ground what the Keneal have done, and I suspect that the Google's lawyers will be looking to appeal, particularly on the one-stop-shop point, but also, I think, on the fine, to try and get the fine reduced, saying that arguing that the fine hasn't been reasonably set out in terms of the reasoning and the logic and so on. Um, they've got four months in which they can appeal to the highest French administrative court, and I suspect that if they raise points about things like one-stop shop, that means they'll have to send the case to the European court for, a, for a, what's called a preliminary reference. So we may be looking at a good two years um, of, of, of litigation. The challenge for Google with all of that, though, I guess, is the fine was 50 million euros. It could have been, based on their turnover, 3.9 billion euros. And obviously, we don't know who else is waiting in the wings. Are other regulators waiting in the wings to impose their own fines, which could be substantially higher than 50 million? And are civil actions waiting in the wings? Is Mr. Schrems, for example, sharpening his pencil ready for another class action of the type he got together post uh, Safe Harbor and the, and the Facebook episode? So I guess we don't know any of that as yet. This could end up being a very costly episode for Google. It could be more than the 50 million euros that they're in for already. And that brings up a point I wanted to uh, speak on. And I want to talk about quantum. I don't want to talk about it in in the uh, British uh, manner of a noun, but I want to talk about it as a verb, uh, the way we talk about it here in the United States, money. That's a verb. You probably didn't know that, but uh, welcome to Texas. <laughs> I'm shocked. Shocked. But the, uh, the, actually, the amount to me, uh, given what it could have been, seems to be, uh, not to say $50 million is not a heck of a lot of money, but uh, it's Google. It's uh, one of the most valuable corporations in the United States. And uh, frankly, I found the quantum amount uh, not, not offensive. Um, yeah. Regardless of the perhaps lack of rationale for the basis of the quantum, um, do you guys have kind of an opinion on um, the just the the raw amount? Uh, you said it could have been quite higher, but uh, it seems to me that this this might not be the battle you would want to fight. I think that's a really interesting comment, and I've I've no I've no inside knowledge on this one yet. But I do know that some regulators, 
work quite hard to set a level of pine that hurts, but doesn't hurt so much that the person being fined runs to an appeal. You know, some people might say that Keneal may have set it at this level to send a message, but not, you know, if it was a 3.9 billion fine, if it was a 3 billion fine, it's a very easy decision for Google to appeal. They'd make that in a heartbeat. They haven't immediately announced an appeal. They have announced some restructuring of their business to try and beef up the Irish uh, centre, if you like, to try and avoid one-stop shop going forward. They haven't announced an, an, an appeal as yet. And it might be that Canilla deliberately set the fine at that level to try and send a message, but not send it through the appeal process. I don't know whether you agree or... Yeah, I mean, it's possible. And remember also, there's a bigger picture here, I think. Remember, they had a massive antitrust fine back in October that does run into the billions. Yeah. And I think that will be more their focus. Um, they'd probably be fighting that maybe more than this one. Uh, that's what I think they'll be look, putting their resources into as a kind of other issue. Yeah. But who knows, on Oh, and one, can I end with a slightly amusing anecdote, Tom? Yes. Um, you, you can read in the decision the objections, the various objections that Google have to various points that were raised in the preliminary report by the CNIL. And one of them, and I have to say this as a half Frenchman, is that they were not happy that the uh, report and all the things like that were put, were not in English. Um, so, as one of my colleagues said this morning, well, why, why, why didn't they use Google Translate? <laughs> may we, may anyway. we. <laughs> anyway. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for this very informative podcast. Uh, once again, we're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert on this. Uh, I think, uh, and I'm fairly certain you will be having more commentary, so we'll certainly get uh, one or both of you back for that back going forward. Thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting us, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Life with GDPR, where we took a look at the fine against Google announced this past week at or by the French Data Protection Regulatory Agency, CNIL. I hope you'll join Jonathan and myself again in a week or so when we take a look at another issue around two significant cases that uh, came up over uh, UK data protection and data privacy issue, Cambridge Analytics and Morrison. This is Tom Fox. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.